I went back to when I first took over my platoon, it was a similar situation. It was like, you know, trying to like, hey, I'm your new boss and here's what I'm about, right? And I, and I had a similar message for these guys. And then that, hey, look, you know, we've we've got plans. We, you know, we've got plans to grow this business. We, we think you guys have, have built something really great here. You've got um, a solid reputation in the town. That's clear. And, you know, thank you to Tom for you know, passing this off to us. Tom, like, congratulations on retirement. And then to the team, like, being straight up about, hey, guys, I'm, I'm not a plumber. And I'm here to learn from you guys. And I, and I need you to help me out in that endeavor. And I'm going to be jumping in with you guys on the trucks. And it's not to spy on you. It's not to, like, you know, peer into your personal affairs. I want to learn what your day-to-day life is like and your day-to-day struggles so that I can help you improve and become more efficient and improve your quality of your quality of life, quality of work. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Rich Jordan with me today, who's the owner of Strong Point Management Group, which owns a company called Guarantee Plumbing up in the Northeast and also owns a portfolio of multifamily properties. I've done 125 episodes now, and this is undoubtedly one of my favorite. Rich is just a remarkable guy. It uh, is so obvious that he oozes with leadership qualities and humility. And today's episode, we dive deep into what it's like to buy a plumbing business up in the Northeast and how he's turned something that uh, started with a few technicians into a massive opportunity, has grown the business considerably in his first year of ownership. And we spend roughly 90 minutes just riffing on that whole journey from things as uh, as nuanced as the day he met all the employees in the parking lot and the conversation he had with them to announce that he had bought the business to what he's done to grow revenue and incentivize his people, how he builds trust with his people and things that he's learned in the Marine Corps. Yeah, it was just one of those uh, amazing episodes. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today, amigo. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, I've been excited about this. Let's just start with kind of your background growing up, who you are and and kind of what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I... You know, I basically spent my entire 20s in the Marine Corps as an infantry officer. You know, I held several jobs during that time. I was a platoon commander, you know, where I was leading a team of 50 plus young men, you know, very backgrounds and skill levels, education levels, learned the nuances of, of leadership firsthand there. Uh, then became an operations officer, planning and logistics. You know, basically, I like to think of that time as me being like a fixer. Or like a human fire extinguisher, <laughs> the guy with everyone's phone number, you know, <laughs> little to no oversight there, a small team, you know, basically we expect you to make things happen for our folks. And that was, that was in the Middle East. And basically we were supporting all of Marine Corps operations throughout the Middle East. So super, super cool. You know, so that was one deployment, a couple deployments in that time for basically a total of like two years across Eastern Europe, Middle East, Afghanistan, 
And I came back from my, my final deployment in the summer of 2018. And I had, I saved up a good amount of money at that point, you know, you know, at least relative to my situation and was really tired of all of it being in the market. I was, I was basically uh, completely in index funds. My entire net worth was in index funds. And that year was like a roller coaster ride, just really tired of it and was seeking control of my net worth. And thinking about it further, realized, you know, if I really wanted to do something meaningful for that net worth, I needed some leverage. So to a young American with like no business experience, <laughs> let like the, the simplest form of leverage is a, is a real estate mortgage. So that's, so that's where I, that's where I headed towards and, you know, started, started considering, you know, like single family rentals, then all right, Hey, a duplex or a triplex would be, would be interesting and, and more ideal. And then what really was a game changer for me was learning about just kind of like stumbling my way through like online forums and articles and podcasts and learning about commercial real estate valuation. Right. Like, like I'm sure everyone who listens to your podcast knows, you know, like NOI divided by a cap rate equals your value and your ability to manipulate that NOI through increased rents or decreased expenses can drive like meaningful value for you. And when you, when you're levered up, it means like a lot of value for you personally. So that like that, there was no going back from there. I immediately, uh, you know, started looking at particularly multifamily buildings greater than, you know, five units or greater in order to take advantage of that. So and I found an 18 unit apartment building near where my wife was going to medical school in North Carolina, just a few months after I got back from that deployment, I was living in Virginia as a, and I was now as a war fighting instructor up at uh, the basic school, which is basically like a six month leadership and tactics course for new second lieutenants entering the Marine Corps to train them to be platoon commanders essentially. And so I closed on this real estate deal, had really no idea what I was doing. And, and this is kind of the, this is kind of like the trend of my uh, like business <laughs> journey, I suppose. I'm with you. Really had like no, yeah, exactly. I had no idea what I was doing. Just every time I ran into like a novel issue, grabbing like the best book off of Amazon or, you know, Googling trying to find like a good article or a good podcast and immediately implementing those best practices, whether that was making an offer or conducting due diligence or hiring a property manager or tweaking some line item on the PNL. I was really like straight up figuring it out on the fly. So purchase, purchase that building for 25% down. It was an 18 unit apartment building and continued to be an instructor up in Quantico in Northern Virginia. I was living about three, I was living about four hours away from the property, um, about four and a half hours away from my wife. And continue to be an instructor and, and up there, I was like, you know, teaching, teaching leadership, teaching tactics. I was like a zealot up there about adaptability and focusing our training on fighting like a living, breathing, thinking, counterpunching enemy. And so just heads down, focused on that, managing my property manager down in North Carolina. About 14 months later, that building appraises for double what I paid for it. And I'm about, and at that point I was about, five months away from leaving the Marine Corps. So this was really like just last year. I left the Marine Corps in the spring of 2020, finally joined my wife after spending four years separated 
and acquired Guarantee Plumbing, which is a residential service plumbing business out of New Jersey. And my wife and I moved to Pennsylvania because she got her residency, her medical res- residency up in PA. So closed on that in early September. We've, you know, so we've been owning that for about seven months now. We've gone from a team of three to a team of nine. And we've made seven hires. We had to terminate one and uh, looking to fill three more positions right now. Two plumbers, one CSR slash office admin. In, In the first month of acquisition, our revenue shot up 30%. Then they bumped up to 40%. It flatlined basically through the holiday season of 2020. And now we're up 100%. That is so awesome. Off of historical revenues. Before we get into all that, you said like a few nuggets that I want to dial in on. But first is, did you always want to be a Marine? Like, was this a lifelong, something you wanted to fulfill? Or is it a way to pay for college? Or like, how did you get, how did you think about it? <laughs> my, my parents like to make fun of me that I found the one way into the Marine Corps that didn't pay for college. <laughs> um, I, so I, my family doesn't consider itself a military family, but to anyone from the outside looking in, we definitely are. My father's a naval officer. My younger brother has become a naval officer. He's active duty right now. My mother's father was a Marine. Her brother was a Marine. I mean, <laughs> like on paper, we're definitely a military family, but it wasn't pushed on us. Um, but I definitely grew up with like an understanding of the military and its opportunities for leadership for a young man or woman. Um, and it always kind of interested me. I went to Rutgers for college and I was an engineering student and I wasn't super satisfied with what I was working towards there. I didn't want to be a widget designer. I didn't want to be like some project manager. So, and, and I had had like leadership, basically like any success I've had through my childhood was all and like in teen years was all leadership opportunities, mostly, you know, high school sports and, and college sports. So basically the Marine Corps like wrote, wrote me up, man, my beginning of my sophomore year, I like had a run in with a uh, Marine officer recruiter. He got a good vibe for me and, and then it was off to the races. And I think my parents weren't really like no one who knew me at the time was surprised. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but Listening to the other podcasts you've done, I followed you on Twitter for the last year. I don't know how to describe it, but the way you present yourself is just a very natural leader. Like the way you talk, the tone in your voice, the charisma, the humility. And I, I don't know what I mean by all that, but it, sometimes you just you you come across a natural born leader and whatever you're doing, it it really oozes out of you. I think it's like a God-given gift and talent that you have. That's just from somebody from 2,000 miles away kind of peeking in at your life. You said that you were over in the, the Middle East. How many Marines do we have in the Middle East? Uh, right now, I'm not sure. When I was there, we, I want to say we were floating between 15K and, and 25K at the time. But we were, that presence was was downsizing at the time as well. Okay, so one of the things that we've uh, connected on, or at least I've resonated, is you bought a deal uh, with like no experience, just jumped into the deep end without your floaties on and uh, figured out how to swim and get back out and get on the high dive. Uh, I did the same thing early on. What did you do to that deal to make it double in value? And did you know you were going to be doing those things before you bought them? But let's just spend a little time on how you kind of created all that value and and then really how that impacted your life. Doubling a price with 25% down is a, a big financial win. 
Yeah, no kidding. Um, so <laughs> that that real estate deal, <laughs> that real estate deal. I mean, it was just severely mismanaged. It was, it was mom and pop, and it was it actually happened to be mom and pop out of state owner, and on an eighteen unit property, and and this is North Carolina. It's not California where where a supervisor is required or superintendent is required. They had it. They had an on site manager for this eighteen unit property, and basically it was like a. 28 year old kid that just needed a free place to live. So he, out of 18 units, they were giving him one unit for free to live in a one bed. And then he was using another unit as an office. So that's like, you know, we're talking 10% of the, of the property is, is non-producing. And then they had, they had a bunch of, um, they just had like a really poor PL where they were paying too much for miscellaneous insurance. We ended up bundling cable and providing it back to the tenants, which gave them higher, you know, actually like provided them with premium cable, premium internet, better than they had prior and at a cheaper price than they could get it themselves. And that was, that was a cost to the, to the owner before the owner had been paying for, basic cable and say, I think they were paying $28 a door, if I remember correctly. And and not, not recouping that from the tenants at all. I increased the package, bundled, bundled it together, and now was providing premium cable and premium high-speed internet. And it was costing me $38 a door, but I billed it back to the tenants. So now, you know, that was like a $12,000 a year swing on NOI, which was like 150 grand in value. And then uh, just so that that on-site property manager, I bounced him out of the property day one and brought in a third party. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Brought in a third party property manager. And I'm going off of, I'm going deep in the memory for these numbers, but he was, he was also getting a thousand dollar a month stipend. So we're talking $12,000 a year right there. And then between the two units, you know, this is like a fairly low income property between the two units, that was like a thousand dollars in rent right there. So we just added $2,000 net to the bottom line. And then we brought in a property manager for 10, for 10% of the rents, which still came in below that two grand. And, and they did a better job managing the property because they knew what they were doing. So we got higher rents and, you know, we've done some, you know, mostly like lipstick renovations to the property. Yeah. Did you sell it or uh, recap it? I re I recapped it. Yeah, in uh, early 2020, I recapped it at its at its new value. We pulled out pulled out all of our original capital plus, um, and, and our original capital was 150 grand plus uh 320 thousand, and then rolled that into a million dollar 32 unit building in North Carolina. So right now that's, that's my real estate holdings, eight an 18 unit property from 2018. And in September of 2020, right when I closed on the plumbing business, the same month, I closed on a 32 unit building down in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. I love it, man. Before we get into plumbing, I have one more kind of personal question. Did you say that you and your wife were married for four years, but didn't really like live in the same city? Did I misunderstand that? No, that's exactly right. Yep. So, well, we were actually we had been separated for four years. We got married one year into that four years. So we've been married for three years and, and separated. Yeah. So she, she had lived with me in on the East coast of North Carolina. I was stationed at Camp Lejeune. And then she went to 
uh, Wake Forest, which is like central west North Carolina, about three and a half hours away from medical school. And that was in 2016. And basically over the next four years, I spent two of those years deployed and I spent another, well, I spent a year and a half deployed and another two years up in Northern Virginia, like five hours away from her. I've never asked this question on the podcast and and you don't have to answer if you don't want, but how do you keep the magic alive in a marriage when you're not with each other very often for four years? That that in itself is like a leadership quality. Did y'all just talk a lot? Did you get to see each other often? Like, how'd you manage all this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one, a, hu- a huge part of it, the major part of it is having a great partner. So, you know, Lauren is my wife and, and she is independent, self-sufficient, extremely intelligent, driven, you know, has her own thing going on. You know what I mean? So, that, so, so that's a big part of it. And, and she's very supportive of me and what I've got going on. So, you know, part of like my decisions over the last year in leaving the Marine Corps, because that was, that was no small decision, was like, all right, you know, basically Lauren's been putting up with my... <laughs> bullshit for four years. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, time time to like take one for the team and uh and follow her up to Pennsylvania for for her residency. So that's awesome, man. Okay. So you're heading up to Pennsylvania. Was the plan all along that you were gonna buy a small business? Or was it like we'll get to Pennsylvania and maybe I'll take a job or buy more real estate or was it I'm gonna buy a business? I was keeping my options open. Like I, I did interview for one possible position that was kind of like DOD contractor related. It would have me traveling a lot, but basically living wherever I wanted to. But really from, from the beginning, the, the goal was to, was to own a small business. And I had, you know, I started strong point, you know, in 2018, when I first bought that apartment building, you know, there was a thought it's like, you know, Hey, do I, do I double down on this and become like a real estate GP, you know? I didn't feel great about that. You know, I, like I'm a novice when it comes to real estate, man. You know, like <laughs> no one should be giving me their money to like, you know, invest in like multifamily value add in North Carolina. I would. So <laughs> based on those returns, you do better than some people that do it full time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, it, it just didn't seem, seem like a fit for me. And, and when I really thought about like what I was good at and what I enjoyed small business just made sense, right? I wanted to be, you know, some experiences in the Marine Corps, both as a platoon commander and as that operations officer showed me that I was most satisfied and and at my best when I was on a small team. On a small team, like in a remote far-flung location or like deep forward in a zone and like basically just responsible for like figuring the fuck out, you know? Like no one's coming to save you. You have to sustain yourself. You have to protect yourself. You have to go on the offense and decide when that's appropriate. And you've and you've got men and their, and their lives and their morale in your hands, right? So, I mean, that's just like intoxicating, honestly. So, so when I thought about like how do I recreate that outside of the military? Because because I think a lot of guys get it wrong, right? They're like, oh, I can I can only like I can only catch these thrills in the military, right? And the reality is that like small business ownership is like pretty high stakes, man. So, so, so that's, that's basically like the self-reflection that I was having, you know, 18 months ago, 24 months ago, which then led me to really try to dive in and learn everything I could about like 
what I needed to know about small business. Yep. Yep. Well, we're going to dive in. We're going to spend the next probably 30 minutes uh, of this episode on the the plumbing journey, uh, buying the business. And then we're going to really dial in how leadership and small teams, uh, how you think about it. But so let's just do a masterclass on how a guy with no experience buying and running even a small business, maybe I, I shouldn't say no experience, you were in the, the military, but does it. So how did you source this deal? Were you looking online? Were you like, how did how did this deal become and how many did you look at along the way? Yeah, so I had spent, you know, a considerable amount of like brain power in 20, like through 2019 into 2020, looking at a bunch of deals with with like no, no interest in taking them down. Um, Cause I didn't know where I was going to move to, didn't know where I was going to live. Wasn't sure about what industry I was interested in, but just like getting those reps. Right. And, I, and, and like a lot of the things that I applied in my search for a business, I had kind of learned in my search for real estate. Right. So just like getting those reps, man, getting those reps, getting like, looking at the PL, looking at the location, looking at the demographics, right. Like you would for real estate, same kind of thing applied for, for small business. So I was just getting like a, a look, you know, peering into all these small businesses through their, through their sims over the course of a year. And once I finally found out I was going to Pennsylvania, which was like mid-March, it was actually just about this time last year. Middle um, of COVID, like right as COVID is starting to yeah, break out. Seriously. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect yep. time. Um, COVID, COVID had hit like a week before we found out we were moving to PA. So I start, I start narrowing my search to Pennsylvania and I start getting actually serious about the search, right? And now I'm voicing to brokers my capacity to close my commitment. And I, like I had had an experience in in real estate when I was looking for another deal. My second deal, I found like a really kind of rundown, mismanaged apartment building on really great real estate in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where my wife was living and where we kind of thought we were going to end up. And I reached, did direct outreach to the seller, found out he wanted to sell. He was out of state. But then I had to like chase his ass down for a year, right? And we're talking, we're having great conversations every month. And ultimately, I lose the deal because basically I like wrote up an LOI and, and his uh, agent shopped it around uh, to like people she knew in the area, which was frustrating. So I had, had like a like nasty taste in my mouth from that. And that kind of turned me off to direct outreach for a little bit. So I approached my business search with with that mindset, and I and I basically went straight brokered deals. And part of it was that my timeline was um, like I had a timeline crunch. You know, I didn't want to go. I didn't have. I'm not a search fund investor backed guy, so I didn't have like two years of runway to just like dedicate to the search itself. So I needed like certainty of closing on the seller's end. And for me, a, a broker deal, you know, more likely provides that. So. A lot of it was online search. I mean, we're talking biz, buy, sell, you know, all that stuff. But again, this is a real estate learning for me. I saw a lot of success in going on a site like biz, buy, sell, looking at the listings for that particular area. And instead of just pursuing those listings, looking at who was listing those listings and then reaching out to them, like cold outreach to them, you know, with my with my experience, with my capacity to close, you know, my interest in that, spe- in that specific company and what my like deal criteria was and what my geography was. And then deals started coming to me, which is, which is pretty nice. 
I ended up pursuing, like going pretty deep on a home staging service company in Philadelphia. And I got beat to the LOI, um, like literally had an LOI written up in hand. I'm going to go, I had driven up from Virginia. I was like staying with my parents and cause they live near Philly and I was going to go into Philly and, and view the warehouse, do a walking tour with a broker on Saturday and hand him the LOI. And like, I had the whole movie scene playing in my head, you know, it's going to be, it was going to be awesome. Right. And then Friday morning, I get a call. Hey, thanks for driving up here. But, uh, we just went under LOI with somebody else. Fuck. <laughs> um, so, so I'm like, all right, man, like, you know, like, well, what, what else you got? You know? Yeah. And, um, and that broker had, uh, he had three businesses uh, that he thought I'd be interested in. And I only remember two of them. Um, one was a landscaping company and one was a uh, plumbing company. I actually, when I was waiting to, uh, join active duty, I, I graduated college commissioned as a, as a Marine officer. And, but I got like stovepiped waiting to go active duty. I spent some of that time, about six months of that time as a plumber's helper and like got like a really cool insight into small business through that. So, so I had like somewhat of a love for plumbing and an understanding of the opportunity in that space. And, uh, so I, so I bid on the plumbing and the plumbing company was in, is in New Jersey. It's about three and a half hours away from where I ultimately moved with my wife which obviously is like less than ideal for small business operations. I happen to have my, my best friend from college, a uh, fellow engineer, super savvy, smart from a blue collar, hardworking family, straight shooter guy, um, lives right down the street from the business. And he, and he and I had stayed in touch th- throughout like, you know, our twenties and like particularly like having like business related conversations around the things, things I was doing in real estate. So he was kind of primed. I hit him up like, Hey man, there seems to be a good opportunity, like right in your backyard. Would you be interested in joining me on this? Cause honestly, I didn't feel great about like taking it on myself and living three and a half hours away. He was in, he was in. So, so I drove up, I met with him and, uh, a mutual, fr- a, a good friend of his and a mutual acquaintance of mine, me and this other guy had been in uh, TJ's, my partner's name, in TJ's wedding that year. We met with him and he's a plumber. And in New Jersey, you need, you have to, in order to be a legal plumbing company, you have to have 10% of the company owned minimum by a licensed master plumber in the state. Pretty serious barrier to entry there, but we happen to have a guy like teed up. Okay, great. We're, we're like in the money. So sit down with this guy, meet him, like tell him, you know, meet him for the second time, tell him, you know, kind of like the vision, the, what we got going on. He doesn't have uh, the personal capital to get involved. So, you know, we're going to stake him. Like he's going to have a job with us and he's going to have 10% ownership of the company for nothing in other than his time. Pretty sweet deal. I felt pretty good about it. Um, He felt pretty good about it. We, we all signed the LOI and it gets accepted a few days later. And then we got about 30 days of, of due diligence. And now I'm, this is like the first week of May and May of 2020. And I, I left, I took my uniform off for the last time, basically like Memorial day weekend. So like, I'm like three and a half weeks away from leaving the Marine Corps. And I just got this LOI accepted like hell yeah. Right. And we're about a week into 
due diligence and our plumber backs out. Basically he called, he calls me up and he's like, Hey, I'm out. I want to own 100% of my own company. Huh. I'm I like, that all right, man, well, well, good luck with that. You know, yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know what your plan is, but good luck. I mean, that was like a real kick in the nuts, right? Like, like serious, like existential crisis on the deal at that point. I'm still in Virginia, like trying to wrap things up with the Marine Corps. I'm like running ragged, you know, like working to pass things off down there and, and trying to like negotiate my exit from the DOD, which is, which is like a feat in itself. So, and and then this bomb gets dropped on us. So we, we basically, now we have to launch a parallel search for a plumber. And now we're looking at like going into this deal with a plumber. We don't know, like, mm, again, like not, not optimal. Right. So I'm like tapping my network back in New Jersey. My partner's doing the same, you know, Hey, who knows a plumber? Does anyone know a plumber? And, and we're like, I'm driving up on the weekends. I'm, I'm like holding interviews, phone interviews uh, from down in Virginia and due diligence is going to be up June 10th. And we're going to have like, it was like 30 grand was going to go hard on June 10th. So like seriously starting to feel a sweat. We enter June. We still don't have a plumber. June 6th it was a Saturday, you know, it's COVID and it's up in New Jersey. So like things were like seriously locked down, literally like meet this guy. His name is Rich too. Meet this guy like in a park, you know, it was like, like I, I was certain that like the cops are going to show up and think we were doing a drug deal, but me and my partner meet this guy. <laughs> like now we're just, tree. We're just doing a park deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like get to know him. What, you know, what's he about? We kind of like sell ourselves to him. He's in. And like the, with the understanding of that, like he was basically going to be, he was going to let us hang his license on the wall. He wasn't going to be actively involved. He's going to be basically like a consultant and he'd get 10% of net profit um, for it. Pretty sweet deal for him too. Um, And he worked, he worked full time. He was in the union. And so we shake hands right there under the tree. We get like copies of his uh, plumbing license. Um, He fills out like a form that the bank needed for his like, uh, you know, for his like trade experience. And we're off to the races. <laughs> I mean, it's like bananas, right? I mean, crazy. Like, I'm out of my mind for doing it, honestly. But, but we made it work, and we get to do due diligence. There's really no red flags, at least no red flags that we didn't expect. You know, this is this is a small mom and pop operation, um, like literally mom and pop operation. The owner and his wife ran it and split. You know, like he was he was basically a technician. He was a plumber that happened to own the business and his wife was the office administrator and his son did some administrative tasks around the office as well. And it had two plumbers. So, so when you think about like what I bought, it wasn't much. I mean, I bought four trucks, two plumbers and no corporate infrastructure at all. Like the wife bounced on like day five basically. And like every single business function fell on my lap on, on day one. And all sorts of, you know, hijinks ensued. But, but yeah, basically, I mean, this is, this is a small company. I mean, the, like the, the income statement, the cash flow statement, balance sheet, all pretty like straightforward. There wasn't like a whole lot of like skeletons in the closet. We had a pretty good feel about what we were looking at. So we, uh, you know, once, once due diligence was up or, or during, during due diligence, we had engaged um, a, region, a local regional bank with a solid SBA department and... And started working on an SBA 7A loan, right? And SBA 7A allows you to pull up to 
of the purchase price in in a government backed note and put down 10%. And they'll also, you know, the SBA also rolls in to the note closing costs and working capital. So like it's a pretty sweet little product and allowed us to walk into the deal outside of the 10% down that we put in. Didn't have to worry about closing costs at all, like attorney's fees, uh, CPA fees, valuation fees, and stepped into the business with about 80 grand in the checking account to be able to run the operation. So when you met that broker to start the search, was there something that they had to pre-qualify you? Like, was there something that you had to say, like, I'm good for this kind of prove yourself or because the business was so small and you had a real estate track record that was good enough? Or did you have to show proof to them that you were the real deal? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They required like a personal financial statement essentially. And and a, and a resume. So I, de- I definitely played up the real estate experience and, and, you know, the real estate helped me have like a, like surprisingly high for anyone, like looking at my resume, surprisingly high, like, you know, personal balance sheet, which, which helped like, you know, kind of a sewage, any, any concerns that the broker would have. But yeah, we had to, you know, basically the broker gave me a colonoscopy before you take me seriously. What deal terms mattered to the seller when you were putting together that LOI? Like, was it just price? Was it time to close? Was there anything in that LOI that was surprising to you that mattered to get it under contract? Yeah. So, you know, I, I had, you know, learned you know, through real estate and through small, you know, my small business, you know, self-education, all of the, the ways you can kind of like manipulate terms and, and, you know, really get creative and all that stuff. And I was excited to do that on this deal. And I submitted like I submitted my first offer, and it had like uh, it had like an earnout in there and a seller <laughs> note. Um, and the broker basically told me like, "Get the fuck out! Like, don't <laughs> like burn this. I don't ever want to see this again." Um, so, <laughs> so time time to close was important, and the fact that we were going to be. That, that I was going to jump in full time and, and not like try to consider this an absentee owned business uh, was important. But honestly, price and terms, they were completely rigid, like the most rigid I've ever seen. It was just, this is the price. We are not willing to negotiate even a dollar. And you're going to, you're going to put your 10% down. You're going to get an SBA loan or you're going to go try somebody else. <laughs> I was like, okay. I mean, in, in reality, you know, like I was trying to like, squeeze the juice and like out of the deal and like really work it to my, to my benefit. But the reality was like, I got, I got the deal for like 2.2 X earnings. You know, I mean, it was like, it was a smoking hot deal and it had a ton of upside available, you know, that you could easily see on the income statement. So, so I was, I was happy to pay, I was happy to pay full price for it. So how long was the close? Was it like 30 day look, 30 day close? How long from LOI to closing? It was it was thirty day look, sixty day close, and then it ended up being closer to thirty day look, hundred and twenty day close. But that was mostly on the seller's end. They had um, they had some like lines of credit and things outstanding that like dropped on you know at the eleventh hour that like hadn't been settled, and then like kept pushing closing. The bank needed some things, so we were supposed to close August twelfth, and we ended up not closing until September second. Oh, and we got that under LOI like the first week of May. Okay. 
what did what mattered to you during due diligence? Like what what did you need besides what you saw in the sim that that you wanted to confirm that got you comfortable with the deal? Yeah, I I wanted a strong understanding and and you know, I've looked at a lot of plumbing and, and HVAC deals now and and it's almost always obscure or uh, opaque is like what what labor cost belongs to which employees or which like groups of employees, right? So I was particularly interested in how much are the technicians being paid and how much are they producing? And you know, like that line item is just wages in OPEX on a lot of these sims. And you don't know like how many helpers or installers or managers or customer service reps or whatever is in there. So you're, and without that, you, you have a hard time judging like what perform like what the actual performance of the producing assets, which is, which are your technicians, right? So so that was a big part of it. And then you know part of it was you know making sure there was nothing like legal outstanding, um, you know, particularly for like a home service company that that does you know critical repairs. You want to make sure they don't have like you know liens or, or lawsuits against them for for something that they've messed up or warranties that they haven't adhered to or things like that. So really it was like, what's my, you know, honestly, like I was, I was good with the value that was going in. Like I wasn't trying to, I wasn't looking for reasons to blow up the deal over a couple like bips of return, you know, like, I mean, like at two X earnings, like we, we were just fine there. And I see a lot of like search fund guys do that where one line item is less than ideal. And they're like, no, I'm walking away from the deal at the 11th hours. God damn, man. So didn't have any problems there. I mean, the fundamentals of business I was happy with, but really I was just looking for downside protection, you know, like how, how can this like really explode in my face? You know, is there, is there any fraud going on? And when we check those boxes, we were happy to move forward. Yeah. How long does it take to get a, an SBA loan approved? And and a, you went to, was it just like a regional bank that had an SBA arm or did, was it an SBA? That's all they do is those type of loans and how long did it take to get approved? Yeah, I went, I went to a regional bank that had a pretty strong SBA arm and, and I was pretty happy with that, honestly. And I'm happy that we have that local, like established relationship with them now. It's been helpful since you know, they've loaned on some of our trucks and, and, and basically, you know, we just have a partner in them. I'm trying to remember how long it took to get approved. It wasn't long. I think like once we like really got all of our, uh, once we got them everything they needed and that's no small task. I mean, they, they asked for quite a bit of paperwork and, and projections and, but the reality is that their like standard for those is pretty low. Like you and I, you know, if someone told us to build out like a 13 week cash flow projection, like, you know, we would run that to ground. We would like really fucking do that. <laughs> um, and it would look, it would look legit, but, but they, they don't really need anything. Or uh, what I mean is like, they, they don't really QC any of the stuff you send them. It's just, it's all, it's all like checks in the box, honestly. So it wasn't that hard to get them what they needed. And I think like probably after, after they had everything they needed, it might've been 14 days for approval. Yeah. So you get approved 10% down. The seller wasn't going to, was it agreed that the seller was going to take their cash at closing and they were going to ride off into the sunset? Or was there an agreement that they would stay on and consult or work in the business a little bit after? I know the wife bailed after five days. What about the husband? Yeah. So the the agreement was that the wife and the husband were going to 
be full-time unpaid for three months. And that just kind of like quickly fell apart. I think that's the story for a lot of guys in, in this racket from what I understand. So this certainly was the case for us. Like, you know, the wife was basically like, okay, you know, it was just like kind of every day she's like, Hey, do you need me for anything? And I'm like, I don't know. Do I need you for anything? You know, help me out here. (laughs) (laughs) And So after a while or or not really after a while, like literally like the second week of taking over, it was like, Hey, look, why don't you just like cut, cut bait, hang out at home, do what you got to do. I'll call you if I need you. Tom, the owner, the seller was more involved. I mean, you know, like I'm not a plumber by trade. I have like very little plumbing experience. So he was helpful in like establishing vendor relationships, supplier relationships, talking me through, you know, what to think about for estimating work and, and, uh, what like a reasonable expectation is for how long certain jobs are going to take, you know, just kind of like giving me some of the more nuanced takes on plumbing. But even then after two weeks, after two, three weeks, it was kind of like, he was like sitting across from me, (laughs) across from me at the desk just kind of tapping his fingers like, Hey, you need me to do anything? I was like, mm, no, not really. I mean, if you want to go, go, go get lunch with your wife, like maybe we'll talk at the end of the day or something. And then, it, so really, I mean, after three weeks, it was like, I cut him loose. He's also, he's, he's my landlord. I, I rent the property from him that we operate out of. So we still have an ongoing relationship. Um, and he's a good guy. He's rooting for our success and helps us out when needed. But, but really it was like, you know, the business was small. And after a couple of weeks, I was like, uh, you know, I think I at least I understand the business as it stood yeah. at that point. Yeah. What was there? You know, you hear right now the the boomer generation is going to be retiring. Is that why they were selling? They were just they've been running it forever. It was time to retire and do that. Or what was their motivation for selling? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, he was 57. He had had some health he was having some health issues, you know, partially because he was beating his body up, you know, crawling under people's crawl spaces and stuff every day. And his, his wife, unfortunately was having health issues as well. So it was time for them to, it was time for them to hang it up. And they didn't have, they have two sons, both grown adult sons. One's like two years older than me and the other's maybe five years younger than me. Um, and I'm, I'm 30. So their two sons weren't interested. And, and not only that, but, you know, Tom, Tom had voiced to me as well that his concern was that if he, if he tried to pass it on to his son, cause his, his youngest son's actually in plumbing. He's a, he's a plumber. He, his concern was that if he passed it on to his children, he'd never get out from under the business. He, he'd always be in it. So he really wanted, he wanted a clean break. He wanted to like, you know, go fishing and, you know, enjoy his life. So that's how it fell into my hands. Before we get into once you closed, um, now that you've owned the business a while, looking back, is there anything that comes to mind that maybe you wish you had asked during due diligence or things that when you go to buy your second plumbing company, you will do differently going forward? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so a couple failures out of the gate for me was one was, and I had tweeted about this, uh, but one was that I, I showed up on day one and I guess I didn't properly like visualize my way through like the day-to-day requirements of the business uh, of that specific business. And, and, and what I mean by that is like a plumbing business means like your inherently distributed operations, right? Like your plumbers are out on the road on their own. So that requires them to be able to like 
do simple things like pay for fuel, pay for some supplies, go to Home Depot, right? I didn't, I, I don't know how I missed it, honestly, looking back, but I didn't have any, like, I had nothing in place for them to be able to do that. So we closed on a Wednesday afternoon. We took over on a Thursday morning, September 3rd. And, you know, typical, like, awkward introduction to the team. We, like, shake some hands. We're in the park a lot. The guys are trying to, like, get in their trucks and go. And the seller, like, not even 30 seconds after I, like, introduced myself to the team, and the guys, guys were shocked. They didn't know the business was being sold either. So like, holy shit. And not even 30 seconds later, Tom's like, Hey, Rich, you got, um, you got like a fuel card or something for Mike needs to gas up his truck for the day. And my eyes got real wide, like, Oh shit. Like, Oh my God. So literally, I mean, I had no other choice. I pulled out like the corporate debit card that I'd like gotten maybe like a week prior and, and handed it to the technician that I just met. And like gave him the pin code just in case he needed it. And I ended up picking up from him at like noon. And then, but we're like, oh man, that's like, that's a problem. So uh, me and my partner that night at like 10 PM, we're taking all the trucks and like round robbing them. Cause we have, we have four trucks. We're round robbing the trucks to the gas station, like a quarter mile away to fuel them all up. <laughs> and basically we did that for like, two and a half weeks. Um, and it was like, anytime a guy needed to go to Home Depot, I had to go meet him, right? And like, check him out. And it was like, I mean, it was like crazy. And, you know, like I no longer had the wife answering the phones. I was answering the phones, literally this earpiece I'm wearing right now, I was wearing that like all day, you know, uh, good afternoon. This is Guaranteed Plumbing. This is Rich speaking. You know, I might help you. And, you know, I'm trying to like onboard vendors for us. I'm like trying to like meet my guys at Home Depot to pay for stuff. And I'm taking calls over the phone. I've got like a notebook in my pocket. I'm like jotting stuff down. It's like absolute chaos. So, so that's one thing I would have done in due diligence. Yeah. Um, How do you pay for gas? And then, yeah. Another one was, was payroll. So pretty like industry standard is guys get paid every Friday, right? Um, it's hard, it's hard to like attract guys to your company if, if you don't do that. So this company, like everybody else pays every Friday. And I had assumed that that was for the week in arrears, like every other business in the United States. Right. And so, like I said, I, uh, we took over on a Thursday morning and payroll was the next day. So Michelle's the wife who runs the office. I reached out to her on Friday morning as I was driving in. I was just like, Hey, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but just want to make sure you guys are, you guys are paying payroll today. Right. Because you know, the guys worked for you last week and we're paying them for last week. She's like, Oh no, we, we pay for the same week of work. We pay Friday to Thursday and we pay every Friday. So you owe the guys for Wednesday and Thursday like the, the previous two days, like, you know, my head almost exploded on the way into work. Like, holy <laughs> shit, I got to figure out how to pay these guys. You know, I, I had thought that I wouldn't have to make payroll for like basically 10 days after taking over. And I had already like worked out with a, a payroll processor. Gusto is what I use. They're great. That like, basically if I had everyone's info in the system by Wednesday afternoon, they'd be able to get direct deposit paid on Friday morning. So felt good about it. I was good, but now I'm screwed. Right now I'm like, I need to pay these guys today. Not much, but for the last two days and, and I have no way to do it. So I literally like with like the calculator on my phone, 
generated like all of their like tax liabilities and like social security, Medicare, all that stuff, FICA and hand wrote payroll checks that day. (laughs) (laughs) I took a, I took a picture of like one and I had these like payroll slips on like loose leaf paper that I like ripped out for the guys and gave them. I I took a picture of it because it was so just like ridiculous. That was something I, I, I just assumed that, uh, pay was a week, week in arrears. So you close Wednesday afternoon, you show up Thursday morning. I was going to ask you if the, the employees knew that the business was going to sell. They obviously didn't. What was that conversation like? And let's just talk about, and I've, and I've heard you speak about this uh, on Twitter and um, on other podcasts, but okay, I'm the new owner. I'm rich. I'm your boss like bridging that gap. And I think this is probably where a lot of your leadership and small team work from the military probably kicked in pretty quick. You had to get these guys on your team rather quickly. So what was that like? Literally walk me through. I'm standing with you guys in the parking lot before they head out for their day. I'm rich. What what happens? Yeah. So I park my truck in an adjacent lot and I walk over with my partner and the guys are like, you know, kind of milling about the parking lot, loading their trucks up, getting parts, clearing out their trucks. And Tom, the seller, is, is inside. And we we roll up and, and the guys are like looking at us, like nodding at us, like, hey, what's up, man? Like, you must be here to sell something or something. And uh, we're just like, hey, how's it going? And we're just kind of like standing there awkwardly, you know, with our hands in our pockets, waiting for Tom to come out. And then Tom comes out and, and one thing that we didn't do well that I would do next time is like really work out with the seller, like how this is going to go because he ended up just literally like walking up the guys on, on the like tailgate to their trucks and just being like individually to each of them. So the business has been sold and uh, these are the new owners. This is rich. This is TJ. And it was like super, super awkward. The guys are finding out one by one and like each, the rest of the team is like seeing the reaction of what's happening. They're like, what, what is, what is going on? Who are these two strangers? And why are they talking to that technician with the owner? So I'm like, Hey, hey look, let, let's just bring everybody in real quick. And we, we gather everybody together. And basically I, 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 I went back to when I first took over my platoon, it was a similar situation. It was like, you know, trying to like, Hey, I'm your new boss and here's what I'm about. Right. And I, and I had a similar message for these guys. And then that, Hey, look, you know, we've, we've got plans, we, you know, we've got plans to grow this business. We, we think you guys have, have built something really great here. You've got um, a solid reputation in the town. That's clear. And, you know, thank you to Tom for you know, passing this off to us, Tom, like congratulations on retirement. And then to the team, like being straight up about, Hey guys, I'm, I'm not a plumber. And I'm here to learn from you guys. And I, and I need you to help me out in that endeavor. And I'm going to be jumping in with you guys on the trucks. And it's not to spy on you. It's not to like, you know, peer into your personal affairs. I want to learn what your day-to-day life is like and your day-to-day struggles so that I can help you improve and become more efficient and improve your quality of your quality of life, quality of work. So just basically like a very humble approach. And, I, and honestly, that's how I would do it again, too, if I took over another company. Although I probably feel a little more confident in what I know now. But still, I mean, the reality is you're coming into a business that has been operating for 30 years. You might own it now, but you're the new guy on the block. You don't know what the hell you're doing. So I've had success in just being transparent about that, whether it was with an infantry platoon or with a uh, 
with a plumbing company. So what was their reaction? Did they trust you right out the gate or was it kind of like, obviously shell shock? I'm literally living like minute by minute here, but I'm assuming they weren't like, oh, great. We fully trust you with our lives now and our livelihood. Like you had that conversation. It was time to go get gas. But how, how do you think they took it? Yeah. So, so there are three technicians because uh, they had hired a technician a couple of weeks prior to try to replace the, the capacity that the owner was vacating. Yeah. Um, so three technicians. So you kind of have, you have different reactions from all three, right? One of them had been with the, with the owner for 16 years, had apparently had some expectation that the business was going to be his at some point, even though, you know, and honestly, like that was just not reality. You know, he didn't have his license. It was, it just wasn't going to happen, but it, but he had some sort of expectation of that. And, and had been working for this guy for, for almost two decades and was somewhat like betrayed by not just the fact that the company was sold, but the fact that the company was sold without letting him know. Right. And I totally get that. And then the uh, the second technician had been there for three years. He was a young kid. He'd basically been working for this company since he was 19, 18, 19. Young guy, super skilled. He's, he's, he's a great people person. So he had a poker face, was very welcoming to me. Um, I found out later that he was like totally freaking out. And, and then like the third guy who had just showed up was basically like, yeah, whatever, you're my new dad. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy Rich. So outside of that first reaction because that senior technician while he he did his best to keep a poker face like it was very clear it was like long sip of coffee out of the thermos when <laughs> the owner told him what was happening and uh i was like okay i gotta give that guy some love but across the rest the other two guys i felt like it went pretty well that and then you know unfortunately like the reality of the situation was we had to immediately jump on the road. The guys went and performed their jobs. We immediately jumped on the road with the, with the seller and like did introductions to all like the suppliers and vendors and stuff around, around the area. So we were basically like out of pocket all day on the first day. The second day I was like, I'm not allowing that to happen. I talked to my partner, um, was like, look, man, I need you to hold down the office. I'm going out in the trucks with the guys. Right. So spent some time with, uh, with that second, with that, uh, you know, kind of like second most senior guy, got to know him a little bit, felt pretty good. And then I talked about this on, uh, Alex's podcast, you know, I ended up jumping in and helping out my, that most senior kind of disgruntled technician, get himself out the door early so he could take his family on vacation. And we had a great conversation while we were putting a water heater in, you know, for nearly two hours, and just going over like, you know, really like sincerely picking his brain on, all right, man, like you've been here for a long time. Like, where does this company need to go? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What does this company need? You know, what do you need? And, and he was an open book. And I think a big part of it was that I was an open book too. I mean, he was asking me about my service, asking me about my family, where I grew up, what I'm about. And, you know, I didn't hold anything back. And that, that's basically how I, how I ran my units in the Marine Corps too. It was like, yo, if you want to know something about me, I'm going to tell you. So that got him to open up a little bit. And we started, you know, really going through basically like a litany of value add things that this company could use. You know, the company was all pen and paper, right? So digitizing, scheduling and dispatching and invoicing. 
the, the guys were calling, calling back to the office to be able to run credit cards from people's front steps. I mean, nobody should be doing that in 2020, you know? And that's a frustration for them because like they got to deal with this, like just friction every day. You know, they're having to run in the supply house all the time. So how do we mitigate that? He had heard that other companies are offering incentive programs. Like, you know, what, what can we do about that? And, and, you know, a whole list of stuff. And we just had this great, great conversation. So I went back, you know, that afternoon and I'm thinking, what can I implement immediately to basically like win this guy over, like win his trust by implementing one of his ideas out of the gate. And the simplest one for me, because I had already put a bunch of like research and work into it was implementing tablets for the technicians to take out in the field and running, you know, running a software that kind of ties it all together in real time. So I came back after the weekend, I came back the following Monday with five tablets for, for the technicians, boom, handed them out, like called him out for the idea. Like, Hey, Mike thought this would be a great idea. I agree. We're implementing it like starting this week. You know, I appreciate your guys, uh, flexibility on this. Boom. Like we're, we're rocking and rolling and it was painful. But what's cool is that despite like the pain of basically like implementing an ERP system, like right out of the gate was that it was, it was their idea. It was, and it was the most senior technician who was kind of the mentor to the other two guys. It was his idea. So there was just buy-in across the team and we, we dealt with the friction in stride, you know, like it was, it was a team effort. So like getting through that and working together on that, I think really gelled the team and one showed them that they have, like they actually have the opportunity to have impact on this company now. Whereas before, like the founder, you know, it was his baby. He ran it how he wanted to run it. And he ran it like he ran it like he'd been running it for 30 years. Wasn't necessarily interested what the younger guys thought about how to run a business. Like what do, what do they know about running a business, right? So I think that went a really long way. Um, and basically, I mean, I've been, you know, I implemented that with the understanding that it would have an impact. I think I underestimated the impact it would have. And now I look for those opportunities all the time, no matter how small. I mean, like literally yesterday I was like ordering t-shirts because we're coming into the spring and summer seasons and I was ordering t-shirts for the guys. And that second most senior plumber had voiced to me like a couple of months ago, how he really prefers dry fit t-shirts in the summer. Hates cotton t-shirts working out in the, in the yard and stuff. And I remembered that I knew that he wanted dry fit, but I hit him up yesterday. Hey, Ant, I know you, um, you mentioned like a material for the t-shirts. Like what, what was the, can you remind me what one that was? Oh, it's dry fit, it's dry fit. Okay, perfect, man. I'm ordering t-shirts right now. I'm going to, I'm going to order those for us. And you know, he's like beaming from ear to ear, you know, little stuff like that. So to me, to me, like that's just leadership one-on-one, but, and I, and I think I was doing that subconsciously for a long time in the Marine Corps. And and now I've like, maybe now that I'm doing like more self-reflection, that's become like a really important tool for me. How, um, when you were doing due diligence on the business, you probably had a lot of ideas that, you know, you've taken a lot from the team and it sounds like you kind of listen in between the lines of what's going to matter. But how'd you think about, okay, I have all these ideas. I can't just show up day one and start shoving them down everybody's throat. I got to take time and like get buy-in how did you think about like when it was time for you to start maybe making the impact that maybe you wanted to make? Uh, did you, it was like, I'm going to let a couple of weeks go by. I'm going to get to know these people. I'm going to get buy-in first and then I'm going to start implementing or were there things that 
you were just going to come straight hot out of the gate with like the ERP system is like, yeah, you needed to hear it from somebody, but you probably knew it needed it as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had, I had all, I had a list of things that I thought needed to be implemented. And, and to be honest, like, I, like when I look back, I didn't really know what the hell I was walking into. Right. I thought I did, but I, but I really didn't. So, um, but I, but even still, I had a list of things that I thought needed to be implemented. And to be honest, like, you know, Tuesday before closing on Wednesday, the plan was, Hey, we're not going to touch a damn thing for three months. We're not going to touch, we're not going to touch anything for three months. We don't want to break anything that's not broken. So (laughs) we quickly flipped on that, (laughs) like quickly flipped on that. So I mean, once we kind of implemented that, that ERP, you know, tablet technology, it was kind of open season for change after that, honestly. But a lot of it was, you know, there was a domino effect of things that needed to occur before certain things could happen. So, you know, like I said, like every single business function fell in my lap on day one. And the most notable of those being customer service, right? Answering the phones. I didn't have anyone to answer the phones. The wife bounced. So, I mean, there was a day like the second week where I fielded 140 calls while trying to run the business, you know? So, so the, so the dominoes that needed to fall were, cause, cause it became very clear to me immediately that I needed to get that off my plate yesterday. So first it was like, all right, I need, we need to dial in the scheduling dispatching software. Like we need our technicians and us to understand how to use it correctly and, and get it rolling. And then as soon as we're able to do that, I can bring on a customer service representative that can take calls and put them into the schedule because you can access the schedule from anywhere, right? It's not like a paper ledger in my pocket anymore. So, so that needed to happen. And really, as soon as, as soon as I was able to offload customer service, which it took me until basically October 1st. So it took me about four weeks to get that off my plate. Then I had, you know, 100% more bandwidth to be able to work. Um, and then it became, you know, we, we started dialing, dialing in pricing. Like previously, the technicians would go out, they'd get eyes on the job, and then they'd call the owner and tell them what they saw and what they thought it should be priced at. And he'd change it one way or the other. And then they'd go quote that to the customer and, and perform the work. Obviously, like that wasn't going to work for me, right? I'm not, I'm not a plumber. I don't necessarily know how long things are going to take um, or how to like effectively estimate. I mean, that was like a major blind spot for me. So, so one was like implementing like hard and fast flat rate pricing on all of our tasks. So in that way, it like gave the technicians a constraint that ultimately gave them more autonomy, right? They like now the prices were fixed, but they didn't have to call into the office or back to the owner every job. And it just is what it is, right? The prices just are what they are. So things like that was basically, I I basically like immediately, like day one, I took everything on my plate. And then for the next three months, I spent most of my energy trying to offload things off my plate, either through, you know, making hard and fast decisions, like this is what our price is. So don't call me about it anymore or offloading customer service or like automating the permitting process, 
hiring a service manager that can manage the technicians, like from a plumber standpoint, who he ultimately was my, the licensed master plumber that I met under a tree in a park. Um, he ultimately came on in October because he, he thought it was really cool what we were up to, you know, was, was interested and basically tired of the union. He came on to be a technician and we quickly elevated him to the position of service manager. So he's still in that role. He's doing a great job. And basically he like, He's like QC, you know, he's, he basically manages the plumbing aspect of the business, the, the actual work itself. How did you go through that pricing exercise to nail down pricing? Do you just get everybody in a room and say like, these are the top 10 asks that we consistently get asked for? Let's all, you know, how did you understand what to say? Like, this is the pricing and how did you like feel confident that that was going to be something that uh, would stand hold, uh, stand true in the field? Yeah. So so the owner um, previously had, he basically considered himself a flat rate shop. And, and to give some context, plumbing companies and HVAC companies kind of demarcate along one line. It's either you're either time and materials or your flat rate. Time and materials, think of like the auto body shop that says like, hey, we worked on your truck for four hours and, it, and we use this much material and our hourly rate is $120. So here's our price, right? And they break that out for you. A flat rate company is going to say, I fixed your drain. This is the price. Doesn't matter how long it took me. Doesn't matter what materials I use. This is the price. And it, it's, and what, I, what we've driven home for our technicians is to think about it as in terms of the result. Like the person is paying for the result. They're not paying for how long you're at their home. Right. So the, so the previous owner considered himself a flat rate shop, but really when he would have those conversations with his technicians, he'd say, how much material do you need? And they'd say, all right, I need 50 bucks of material or hundred bucks of material. All right. And how long is it going to take you? It's going to take you two hours. Okay. Well, our hourly rate is two fifty, So two hours, hundred dollars of material, it's going to be 600 bucks. Right. And that's how he would build it. So, so we kind of had that to work with as far as like what our billable hour was at least previously. And then it became, all right, like you said, like here's our litany of tasks how much do like how long do all of these take on average? Each one of these take on average, um, and then how much material do we allocate to that to that job as well? Um, and then we built it, and it was and that was it. And if the job's more difficult, we can you know we can kind of you know we can bump we can bump the price as as we as we need. But that was kind of like the rough way we did it in the beginning. There are plenty of services out there as well, like third party services that'll help you like build your price book. For plumbing and HVAC, we we've ultimately ended up ended up using one of those, and that's you know that's been quite nice, much easier to manage because we have like my price book now. I mean, has thousands of tasks, right? That's pretty hard to like manage in an Excel sheet. <laughs> so so off offshoring that to somebody is it was pretty useful for us, but that didn't happen until December. So is that just in the ERP system? They they see what the problem is, they just go through the list of tasks, and they can eat immediately. Go, yep, this is the cost. Exactly. Yeah. We have like a, like almost like a menu, um, where the plumbers can like kind of click through categories, very like intuitive, like, okay, this is a drain fix. Now it's a, and then I've got options for like main drain and whatever else. Okay. It's a main drain. It's a main drain clog and I need to hit it from the outside clean out. Okay. What's that cost? What are some of the, um, everybody responds well to incentives. Have you implemented any incentives for technicians, for service managers to where they can do better as the business does better? 
Big time. This has been this this has been a big push for me, and it's something that I I wanted to roll out quickly, um, but I slowed my roll because you know on reflection I realized if you roll out an incentive and then have to do away with it because um, you didn't think it through all the way, you're you're messing with guys' pay, and like that's a really great way to cause a mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> right? So so I was cautious in rolling it out, and and it was kind of. Um, a stutter start, honestly, even, even when I finally did, uh, try to roll it out, we, we definitely kind of stutter started. So initially I wanted to incentivize the guys on basically their gross profit. So I wanted to, I wanted the number that we incentivized them on to be sales minus materials minus labor. So that way we weren't incentivizing because it was very important to me that we didn't incentivize them to upsell large equipment replacements, right? And if you subtract material from that incentive, you know, metric, you take care of that to an extent. So when I explained that to the team and like literally we're in the, in the shop with like a, uh, like a toilet box cardboard tear out on the wall. Cause we didn't have a whiteboard at the time. And I'm like sharpieing on it, like showing them the math and one of the technicians raises his hands, his hand. He's like, so now that I'm paying for material, can I buy my own tools with the company card? I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're not paying for material. Let's be clear. I am paying for material, brother. <laughs> so it just like, wasn't, I went back to the drawing board on that one. We never, we never rolled that out. Literally like that conversation. I was like, okay, scratch that. I ended up, so I tried to think about like, what do these technicians like truly understand inherently? And my answer was they understand their sales number and they understand their hourly rate that they get paid, right? Their wage. And they understand how many hours they worked. Like every hourly employee knows the hours they worked to a T, their hourly wage and their sales number. So I, I built the incentive plan along that and as the general idea, it was pretty simple. It was basically like, if you say, if you hit 10 grand for the week in sales, you'll get an extra $8 an hour bump to your hourly rate applied to all the hours you worked for the week. Right. So if you worked 40 hours for the week, you get $320 on top of your pay basically. And it, and that $8 would be $12 time and a half for any overtime hours. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. And they, they definitely understood it. Um, and we rolled with that for like two months. And the problem was when I started trying to recruit, cause we started growing, you know, in January and February, we started really seeing some growth and in, in demand for our service. So I'm trying to add technicians and couldn't explain it to them. You know, you know, like there's probably some listeners of the podcast right now that are saying like, what, I don't know what the hell Rich just said about that incentive program. I don't get it. And that's what, that's the response I was getting from these new technicians. My technicians totally understood it. Not a problem. But not only could I not uh, explain it to them, to new technicians, but my technicians couldn't explain it through the grapevine to other technicians when they were like at the bar talking about how good they've got it, I guarantee. So, so we scratched it again. And this coincided with, I actually changed my ERP system in February to like the big Cadillac uh, program, which is uh, Service Titan. And Service Titan has really clean data metrics, which is, which is why one of the reasons I went there. And that allowed me to distill it a little bit further. So now 
and this was a revelation for me in January, was that as an owner of a plumbing company, all I should really care about is the sold hours that I have, right? So every task, right? Like we said, like has a certain amount of hours associated with it. And I'm able to track those hours as they're sold by each technician. Because when you think about it, like my revenue on a certain, on a particular job is broken up into a couple of categories. You have like my dispatch fee, right? Pretty typical in the industry, like, you know, say $50, $90 dispatch fee, whatever. That's going to get charged to every job. And then I have that labor component times my billable billable rate. And I have materials and that, that revenue for materials is coming through me and it's going to the plumbing supply house. I, like that is no benefit to me. And then there's a, a small material markup, right? So I'm getting some uh, markup on that material. The only two things that I really care about are the billable rate and the material markup, right? And the material markup is going to be variable. It's hard to track. And, and again, I don't want to incentivize my guys to upsell material because that's just, in my opinion, like straight up unethical um, when, when you're working with a homeowner who's trusting you to do right by them. And a lot of companies fall into that into that trap because they're they're incentivizing their guys on sales. So their guys always going to try to sell you a new heat pump or always try to sell you a new water heater. So my new incentive program incentivizes strictly on the number of sold hours that my guys sell, which when you think about it is pretty is basically the same thing that I first tried to do by doing like sales minus material minus labor. But now it's just like on their tablets, it shows them their number right there on their like dashboard. It says you've sold 16 hours this week, right? Now you've sold 18 hours this week and they can track it. And what I basically what I did was I then, now that I had this clarity, I priced my billable rate so that if my guys were achieving roughly like a 35% efficiency ratio, right? So if they're selling if they're working 40 hours and they're selling, you know, around 16 hours a week, they've covered their wage and they've covered like their allocation of my overall OPEX, right? So if I have 50,000 in OPEX for the month and five technicians, it's 10,000 per technician, they've covered that, right? If they average that for every week. So, so, so then it became, all right. And then they've covered it with, with about, like a 15 to 20% profit margin. So I'm pretty happy, right? And then, so every every hour sold by that technician above that in a week, might as well give them a cut of it, right? Because it's all gravy for me at that point. So we're pretty aggressive on it. Like I, my, my technicians, for every hour they sell above 16, they get a third of that revenue, of that billable rate revenue. So the first week I rolled that out, and this is, I mean, this like couldn't have gone any better for me that senior technician had a banner week, like really legit brought in a ton of work for us. And he sold 50 hours. He didn't even work 50 hours. He worked 42 hours. He sold 50. And we ended up giving him after all was said and done, he ended up his gross paycheck for the week was $5,600, which like, Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) It's more money than I've ever made. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) By a long shot. So, and, and when I was building that incentive program, you know, because you you hear throughout the plumbing industry, throughout the HVAC industry, you know, it's, it's so hard to find skilled talent. And, and it is. But that doesn't mean it has to be hard for you to find skilled talent, right? It's hard for the industry to fill seats. 
but doesn't need to be hard for my company as a subset of that industry to fill seats, right? So all the things we've done to optimize plumbers quality of life was, was working for us, right? Like we no longer uh, offer 24 seven service. So our guys aren't getting pulled out of bed. They work basically 45 hours a week and their time is their own. They get to take their trucks home and dispatch from their house. They have now I've hired unskilled labor to do a lot of the dirty work for them. Um, and like the backbreaking labor for them um, along with, you know, they have healthcare 401k match, you know, like basically I've tried to optimize on every single line of like what could keep a technician happy, but where I still hadn't like, where I still hadn't gained an advantage over my competition over the industry at large was in pay. I was still below some of my highest paying competitors and like at market with basically everybody else. So then I was just like, look, like, why don't I just figure out a way to be like, make a, make a serious goal of, I want to have the highest paid technicians in the country. You know, and I live in a high cost of living area, New Jersey, New York Metro. Like, why shouldn't I have the highest paid technicians in the country? So that's what we've done. And, and honestly, I can, I think I can say confidently right now that I'm, I, I do have the highest paid technicians in the country. If, if someone's beating me, they're, they're paying up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So kudos to them. Uh, you know, I won't worry about their competition, about that competition unless it's in my backyard. So, so now I've got technicians beating my door down. Right. And technicians from really large shops, like one of, uh, one of my largest, you know, institutional, uh, competitors, like a hundred truck organization. I just poached their top producer a few weeks ago. He's crushing it for me now. And he's much happier because they were, you know, they were large and bloated and had a lot, a bunch of bureaucracy and paperwork. And they're subjecting the plumbers to a lot of bullshit. He was working like 80 hours a week because um, they didn't respect his time. And now he's working 45 hours a week for me. None of that bullshit. And he's making more money. And obviously he knows all the guys that work at that large company. So the word's getting out. And then a mentor of his owns his own, he's a master plumber, owns his own small residential service plumbing company in a area just north of me that I'm trying to break into. It's about 20 miles north of me. Very affluent, closer to New York City, uh, denser. And I'd love to do work there. Well, that guy's decided that he's had enough. He's being like run ragged by his own business. He's closing it up and coming to work for me as a technician. He'll start next month. And he's forwarding that number and like all of the like marketing, like tracking numbers to my phone. So, and like, I have every assumption that that will be able to employ at least two technicians full time in a new area, him being one of them. That's, that's a benefit for him. I can dispatch him in the area he already lives in. He doesn't have to commute to me. And that, I mean, that's like a million dollars a year in revenue right there, at least or 800 at least, I'd say. 800 to 1.2 in revenue for me. For It's essentially an acquisition for $0 just for providing a position to that, to that guy. And I've got him in talks with another guy, same situation, um, who wants to do it uh, in close to that area as well. So that's another $0 roll-up acquisition right there. I mean, just gaining that one advantage where it's like apples to apples, pay to pay, plus it's awesome to work here. Yeah. Like I can't be beat. You've got a little moat. So is your goal to pop out of this business or are you now starting to see it? Like when I hear the last two things you said where you're kind of rolling, tucking in these other companies, is it to be a, like an operating CEO of this business for a while and really kind of take it the distance or 
Are you trying to hit a certain level and then kind of pop out and go buy your next service business somewhere else? Like, how do you think about it as you sit right now? Yeah. So uh, this has evolved for me over time. I, I initially thought that, you know, Strongpoint would have like a handful of real estate assets and a handful of like disparate service companies across disparate industries. But, you know, and this won't come as a surprise to you, like niching down and understanding your niches is, is, is an advantage. So like, I feel pretty confident at this point. And I realize I'm probably like right at the peak of like the Dunning-Kruger like effect, right? <clears throat> About to like fall into the, into the uh, valley of, you know, like perceived incompetency. But I feel pretty confident that I know how to run a plumbing company at this point, right? And the HVAC companies are very similar. They have some nuanced differences. But so the idea is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow this particular business through organically and through local roll-up and tuck-in acquisitions until I can't anymore. And I think we've got a lot of room to run on that. And simultaneously try to acquire businesses in adjacent areas. Don't necessarily, can't necessarily be managed um, by the same, you know, like say service manager or general manager from one single location. Like they're, I'm working on an acquisition right now. It's about an hour and 15 minutes south of us. And that's an HVAC company and it's a, they're doing $2 million a year. So that's, to me, that's a large enough business that it could serve as a platform acquisition in that area. And I can, can I can start doing roll-ups and tuck-ins for that business as well. And there happens to be two businesses in its area that aren't great for platform acquisitions, but would be great to roll up underneath that. So that down there, just on its own, say if you if I'm able to successfully acquire all three of those businesses, easier said than done. But if we were, that's like a $7 million operation, right? Guarantee, you know, we bought, it was doing 1.2 million seven months ago. Now we're doing, we're, we're running at 2.5 um, and we're continuing to grow, right? I mean, it's like, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of market share to be gained still. But right now I'm trying to figure out like what that looks like. And I don't necessarily have an answer, but what that looks like for me operating these, you know, different entities um, and sharing services between them, right? So, you know, I mean, simple things like payroll, we don't need to do that twice. We can do that once for both systems, ERPs, dispatching, customer service. Like I'm thinking about, you know, I'm basically building the system so that I could have a central call center taking calls and dispatching and scheduling for infinite amount of businesses, right? I'm also... We actually just wrapped it up yesterday. We're going to go live with it soon. I hired a software developer to build me like proprietary code that when my guy selects a task in his price book and performs it, it immediately deducts that material off of his truck virtually. And that generates a PO every night, gets sent to the regional supply house and goes like doesn't touch anybody in that supply house at all. It goes straight through, like talks in their systems language and goes straight to the pick and pack guy in the warehouse. He packs the box for truck number seven and has it out on the doorstep at 8 a.m. the next day. My guy comes by, picks it up. So now like inventory automated. I don't need to increase my footprint, right? I don't need to buy more real estate for my business. I can now have this like completely disaggregated and decentralized, infinitely scalable, you know, within reason 
resourcing of my technicians. So you're gonna make a billion. You're gonna make a billion dollars off that line of code. It started with a seven million dollar plumbing <laughs> business, and you're about to build a billion dollar. It sounds like there's so many industries that could use that line of code, and I'm actually shocked it doesn't exist. Yeah, pro- like productizing that has been something I've been thinking about. I'm certainly not ready for it yet, or or anytime soon. But that could be another channel. All right. So you're going to start rolling up the industry. Is is this, do you think this exists like all over the country? Is this unique to your area? Or is, I'm sure you've now met a lot of people. Can people in Texas and California and Nevada and Florida be thinking the same thing? Or is it kind of unique to where you are? No, I think it's, it's absolutely universal around the country. I mean, plumbing and HVAC are significantly fragmented industries. I mean, you have a lot of, I mean, you have a, thousands upon thousands of like one man operators out there. But then more interesting to an acquirer, you have tons of three technician shops, six technician shops, nine technician shops, right? Like guys who have, you know, plumbers who have started their own business had a little bit of savvy and were able to grow it outside of themselves. And th- and those might seem, you know, at, on the surface, that might not seem very appetizing to somebody, but a three technician organization that's running correctly in a, in a metro that can support it can be a one and a half million dollar company, right? A one and a half million dollar revenue company. A nine technician company should be four and a half million, right? Basically like half a million dollars per tech, 10,000 a week. I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate business, right? So, and obviously like it wouldn't make sense to try to acquire your first company as like a one man shop, you know, like a, a guy in his truck, but those opportunities start to become somewhat appetizing when you already have the six man organization. Right. So, you know, for me, like I, I uh, executed a tuck in acquisition in January. It was literally a guy in his truck. He retired and I took his whole client list of like recurring revenue, government mandated backflow tests. And that's, I mean, that's been a huge win for us since. Of course, like that would have never made sense for me seven months ago when I didn't already own a plumbing business, right? But but now you know your opportunities start to expand when you're in the game. Yep, I so, love it in the game. <laughs> exactly, that's it. Um, so, and the, you know, just like everyone's saying, you know, like the real estate world talks about this a lot too. This you know silver tsunami that's coming. There are a lot of guys who own their business that are. 50 plus. And over the next 15 years, they're going to need to pass it on to somebody. And in a lot of cases, in in the case of the company that I purchased, their children aren't interested or they're not capable. The HVAC business that I'm looking to acquire bolt on down uh, south of me, two brothers own it and they don't have anyone to pass it off to. So they know that and they're like 74 years old and 67 years old. And they know they, they still got some years in them but they know that they need to get, they haven't, they need to have a succession plan. Right. And they see me as their, as their meal ticket. And I'm totally good. Cool. I'm totally cool with that. So those opportunities exist all around the country. I mean, it, my, my Twitter DMS will attest to that. I mean, I've got guys reaching out to me all the time saying like, Hey, I'm looking at this business, this plumbing business in Charlottesville, Virginia, or Austin, Texas, or San Diego. And they're everywhere. Yep. One of the things that that gets talked about a lot also is, you know, the generation that's uh, growing up now would rather be a 
social media manager, a YouTube creator, something that the blue collar workforce isn't sexy. And then you, I hear you tell me you just paid a plumber $5,600 in a week, which I'm just doing quick math is like, if they did that every week, that's 270 grand a year. How do we get more people to enter this blue collar industry and make it sexy again? Do you have any thoughts on that? If the numbers keep going up and there's fewer plumbers, they're going to get paid more. Like, how do you think about making this cool again? Because if it doesn't happen soon, the cost to build stuff and maintain stuff is just going to keep going through the roof. And ultimately, that's good for you and good for business. But overall, it seems like when the opportunity, if it gets too high, people will start flooding the market again. Like, have you put any thought into that kind of aspect of how we make plumbing cool again? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple ways to attack this. And one of them is that I think there's going to be, there's going to be a reckoning, you know, there's going to be like a forcing function that topples the castle and, and it's, it's already starting, you know, with, we've got tons of, you know, 20 something, 30 something year olds who went to said name college, you know, liberal arts college, got a basket weaving degree. And now they're surprised that they can't find work, right. For more than like 45 K. So, or, or maybe they even got a higher skilled job. Like I have acquaintances of mine that, you know, maybe they be, they became like a physical therapist or they became like a, uh, occupational therapist. They needed to get their master's degree or their doctorate in order to do that. They have $300,000 in debt and oh, surprise, like that job only pays 50 grand a year. <sighs> Ouch. Right. So that's just going to continue to being a problem. And obviously like the, the conversations are out there about, you know, deleting student loan debt and all that. I'm not going to, you know, get into that, but ultimately people are going to see like, I have to do something different to like really make a living. And some of these, some of these blue collar jobs aren't that bad. Honestly, like plumbing, plumbing's probably the worst of it, right? Service plumbing at least. And, but like, you know, HVAC can be like pretty clean work. Electricians that can be like pretty clean work, you know? And, and you see, particularly in HVAC and, and, and electric, you, you see, you know, like lately I've seen, you know, young women going into that work, you know, things that you like stuff you wouldn't have seen say 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So I think people are starting to realize that the bill of goods that they're being, that they've been sold over the last 25 years, you know, is bullshit, Right go to college and, and basically your life will be taken care of. It's just not true. So, so you have that. And then it becomes like, how do you, how do you market the trades? You know, we have, we actually get a lot of like inquiries from young kids that want to be plumbers, but then they kind of get lost in the system of like accreditation and certification and licensing and school. And it's like, God damn, just to be like, just to be an apprentice, I have to do like all this paperwork and like get all these certs. Okay. If I want to get my license, I have to go to plumbing school for four years while being gainfully employed as a plumber. That's hard enough. And I have to like find a licensed master plumber who's going to like basically be like my official state like mentor is going to sign off on my hours. After I complete school, I still have to do another year of work as a journeyman and then take the test. Hopefully I get it right. There's like business shit and legal shit on that test that a lot of these guys struggle with. And then they ended up not becoming master plumbers, right? Like 
I've got one guy, uh, my, my senior guy, he's, he's an excellent plumber. One of the best. He completed school, but he never took his test. And now he's afraid to take his test because he doesn't think he'll pass. And it's like, well, do I go back to another year of school? The answer is of course, like, no, you know? So, and I get it, you know, like the trades, I think it's trades driven. Like they're trying to protect, you know, there's some like regulatory capture. They're trying to protect their own trade by not letting anybody get in there. But they're making it hard. They're making it hard for the next generation to come up and actually be productive plumbers or HVAC technicians or electricians. So it's a tough, it's a tough nut to crack, man. But there are like there are organizations out there that are putting together, you know, like 90 day boot camps that'll, you know, make you, you know, a fairly competent plumber that can go in and handle most issues. So you see a lot of kids like going into that. And a lot of times like companies like mine will pay somebody to go to a course like that for 90 days while paying the tuition of that course. So things like that are in motion because the industry is seeing that it's a problem. And, and like you said, like the cost of development is going to go up, but also like the cost to me to hire technicians is going to go up. You could say I'm, I'm contributing to that problem personally, but it's certainly a problem that needs to be tackled for sure. All right. A couple personal questions and then I'll, I'll let you go uh, back into the plumbing world where you're just absolutely crushing it. it is, this has just been awesome. What did the Marines teach you that you'll live on with the rest of your life that you couldn't have learned anywhere else? The, the leadership lessons that I learned in the Marine Corps, I think would have been really difficult to learn anywhere else, particularly at the age that I was at the time, right? I mean, you got to think like the Marine Corps, and this is true of the Marine Corps more so than any other service in the DOD. They push so much responsibility down to the lowest level. So, you know, like a 23-year-old second lieutenant is put in charge, truly, of, you know, a 50-man platoon and is tasked with their training, their professional and personal development, you know, making sure their home life is stable, their promotions, their health and welfare, you know, like, who else gets that opportunity? Nobody, right? So, like, the you know, the leadership lessons that I've that I'm, that I'm now benefiting from, I don't think I could have gotten anywhere else. Um, but I think, you know, to take it another direction too, like personally, something that was really drilled into me by the Marine Corps and, and through my experiences in the Marine Corps is what I would call like competitive decision-making, right? It's like decision-making under stress against a thinking opponent, Right that's trying to kill you. So what does that look like? I mean, I have to, you know, in that moment, I have to figure out how to gain an advantage. I have to figure out how to be faster. I have to figure out how to communicate across my team when things change and I'm trying to adapt to the ever-changing situation because my opponent is reacting to my actions. And I have to not be caught in analysis paralysis when all that's going on because that is the end of you. Right. So the Marine Corps, you know, you'll hear the uh, guys in the Marine Corps talking about having a bias for action or, you know, being, being willing to execute the 80% solution, right? Like going without perfect information. I mean, that is like so deeply instilled in me at this point. And I, and I, and I think like, you know, the, the proof's in the pudding, right? I mean, like I literally bought a plumbing com- company without being a plumber. I bought 
an apartment building without ever having owned a house. So it's like, you know, it's pretty universal truths. You know, you, you end up just having a willingness to ultimately just say, all right, I like, I've got the info I have. I have the tools I have. It's time for me to jump in the pit and fight the tigers and bears, you know, pick up a weapon and just like get this thing done. And I'm going to, I don't know how they're going to attack me in there, but I know they're going to, and I'm just going to have to figure it out. Do you have a morning routine? I always think of um, Marines as like waking up at 4 a.m., making their beds, Chris, tucking that shirt in. Like, how do you get your day started? Unfortunately, I'm, I'm like not that guy. I, uh, I wasn't that guy before the Marine Corps and I was willing to, <laughs> or I, was, I was able to get through the Marine Corps without building those habits for better or worse. But uh, for, for me, like I, I protect my entire morning at this point. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I own my own company. I'm able to do things that I want to do. But I protect my entire morning. So I, you know, I get up at seven. I take the dogs out. I brew my coffee and I kind of like sit and have like a pensive moment with my coffee and just like think about whatever I've got going on. No distractions, no phone. And that's like a very important part of my day. And then, and then I jump into the day. You know, I work, I work from home at this point most days when I'm not driving to New Jersey and taking care of business there. So I try to line up basically for the five mornings that I have in the week. On Sunday, I try to line up all of like the big ticket projects that I want to work on for say three hours a day, right? So that might be like inventory automation or that might be the new incentive program or whatever, or, you know, a new acquisition or whatever I'm working on. And, and I mean, that's been really powerful for me, right? So th- those hours are my more, are my most lucrative and compounding hours. All right, man. I've taken a lot of your time. How can people reach you and follow what you're up to? Yeah. Uh, Twitter's the best place to reach me. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed to like admit how much time I'm on there. So if you reach out to me, I'm probably going to see it. And, and I'm sharing everything I'm doing there. So, you know, I like to think I'm giving a pretty good like play by play, blow by blow on Twitter. So if you're interested in what I'm doing, you can definitely find me on there and reach out, you know, and, and what I'll say, Chris, before, before we jump off is that if there's like any veterans, you know, I got a, obviously a soft spot for Marines, uh, particularly Marine infantrymen, but if there's any veterans out there that are looking to take a stab at something like what I'm doing, please reach out to me directly and I will bend over backwards to help you help you out. So Twitter's the best place to reach me. That gave me chills, dude. You're, uh, you're awesome. Seriously, just absolutely blown away. You're going to make a big dent in this world. I appreciate that, Chris. Thanks, man. And the, uh, the feeling is more than mutual, man. I mean, you're, you're a force to be reckoned with real estate, uh, private equity firm, media company now. I mean, I think uh, and anybody watching what you're up to is, is seriously impressed. I'm definitely one of them. I appreciate it, dude. Well, I look forward to building a great relationship with you, man. Uh, this is this has been a lot, a lot of fun. And let's just stay in touch, dude. What you're doing is really cool. And I'm a huge fan. Do whatever I can to support you. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks, man. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. 
All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.